Rupert Sheldrake, welcome to the new school. Good to be with you. You are uh, a biologist, a writer. Uh, you've worked in developmental biology. Uh, you've been a plant physiologist. Uh, you've done an extraordinary amount uh, of, uh, of remarkable work. And your most recent book in the United States is called Science Set Free, Ten Paths to New Discovery. And uh, you start by outlining uh, a kind of a scientific creed of ten core beliefs that most scientists take for granted. And I wonder if you, you would begin by just outlining what these uh, ten core beliefs are. Oh, sure. The, um, the ten core beliefs are, first, that nature is mechanical. Um, the world's like a machine. Animals and plants are machines. We're machines, lumbering robots, in Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase. Um, everything is to be understood scientifically as machinery. And what makes machines different from organisms is that machines don't have any purposes or designs of their own. They're put together by external designers and uh, by forces outside themselves, um, whereas organisms are self-organizing and have their own purposes. So that's the most fundamental assumption in mechanistic science, and that's what it started with in the 17th century. The second assumption is that matter is unconscious. We live in a universe made up of unconscious matter, the stars, the galaxies, everything we see out in the sky when we look there is unconscious. Everything on Earth is unconscious except us and maybe a few other animals. Um, some people would say, well, maybe it goes back to the fish or the worms or something. But at any rate, um, the rest of the universe is unconscious unless there are humanoid-type beings on other planets. Um, Third, the total amount of matter and energy is always the same, um, except, except at the moment of the Big Bang when it all came into being uh, suddenly. Um, fourth, the laws of nature are fixed. They were the same at the moment of the Big Bang as they are today, and they'll be the same forever. And the constants of nature are fixed as well, like the speed of light, the gravitational constant, and so on. Um, fifth, nature is purposeless. There are no purposes in nature, no goals, um, conscious or unconscious. And the entire evolutionary process has no purpose or direction. Sixth, biological inheritance is material. It's all in the DNA, the genetic material, or in chemical epigenetic modifications of the DNA, or in cytoplasmic inheritance. At any rate, it's all material with the exception of cultural inheritance. Uh, seven, memories are stored in the brain as material traces. No one knows her, but they must be inside the head somewhere as phosphorylated proteins or modified nerve endings, synapses, um, or in some other material form. Um, they're all inside the head. Everything you, re you can remember is somehow stored inside your brain. Eight, the mind is inside the head. Mental activity is nothing but brain activity. Um, it's all uh, going on inside your skull and uh, can't act beyond your skull except through your muscles and glands. Uh, nine, which follows from eight, psychic phenomena like telepathy are illusory. Uh, they're impossible because the mind's confined to the inside of the head, so it can't have mysterious effects at a distance. So the evidence for telepathy and other phenomena must be denied, ignored, dismissed, because it simply can't be true. And ten, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. Alternative and complementary therapies may sometimes appear to work, but that's just because people would have got better anyway, or um, because it's nothing but the placebo effect. So those are the ten assumptions, the kind of scientific creed, and I think this is the default position of most university graduates, uh, most certainly most in science, uh, engineering and medicine, um, and probably uh, most in the arts and humanities as well, because they feel a tremendous sort of uh, reverence and awe for the scientific worldview, and very few would want to go against it, because almost the definition of being an educated person is to sign up to this belief system. 
Now, in the spirit of what you describe accurately as radical skepticism, you turn each of these ten doctrines into a question, and um, and it really is a, a tour de force, the entire book. Uh, 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 but perhaps one of the most useful uh, places to go from here is to the credibility crunch that you describe in the scientific worldview. And uh, you describe uh, how the philosopher of science Karl Popper uh, called uh, the materialist science uh, one based on promissory materialism because it depends on issuing promissory notes for discoveries not yet made. I wondered if you would describe the, uh, the encounter you had uh, with Francis Crick and Sidney Brenner at King's College and the significance of it for your thinking. Yes. Um, when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge in my final year, this was long, long ago, in 1963, um, Francis Crick and Sidney Brenner invited the, some of the um, biochemistry students, I was doing biochemistry, um, to a series of private meetings in Brenner's rooms in King's College, Cambridge. Um, and both of them had together cracked the genetic code. Crick, of course, was most famous for his discovering the structure of DNA with Watson, the Watson and Crick double helix structure. That was 10 years earlier than this meeting. And then he and Brenner and others had worked out the triplet code, how the DNA code actually works. It was a huge triumph of, and laid the foundations for molecular biology. They were trying to recruit uh, from among the people they thought were the brightest students in biochemistry, people to work with them in the molecular biology laboratory. And basically, both of them were militant materialists. Crick was also a very militant atheist. Um, and what they explained to us was that um, the only outstanding problems left in biology that hadn't yet been figured out were the development of organisms, how plants grow, how animal embryos develop, development, and consciousness. And they said that these hadn't been solved because the people who worked on them weren't very smart, and uh, nor were they molecular biologists. But now, Crick and Brenner themselves were going to turn their attention to these problems, and they expected they'd be able to sort them out with ten year, within 10 years or maybe 20. And so Brenner took uh, development and Crick took consciousness, and they invited us to join them. That's why they were holding these seminars to kind, kind of recruit us. Um, well, uh, they both did what they, what they said they were going to do. Crick started working on consciousness, and when he died about 10 years ago, he, the last thing he did before he died was to correct his last paper on the brain. Um, Brenner got the Nobel Prize for his work on developmental biology in a small nematode worm called Xenorhabditis elegans. Um, that, that was in 2002. Um, so they both pursued the agenda they told us they were going to pursue, but they didn't solve the problem of development and consciousness. They're still completely unsolved. So this optimism that everything would be solved in terms of molecular biology swept along a huge part of the biological community in the late 20th century, you know, the 60s and the 70s. And then in the 80s, it led to the uh, birth of the genome project and the belief that through genomes and biotechnology, the whole of life as we know it would be completely transformed. Fast amounts of money, hundreds of billions of dollars were invested in these projects and most of the money that was invested has been completely lost and um, we've said the sequencing of the genome was a technical triumph but it was a terrible disappointment because um, it didn't lead to huge amounts of products, it, it didn't reveal the secret of human nature in molecular terms and in fact, it's created more problems than it's solved, most extreme of which is the so-called missing heritability problem, where it turns out genes account for only about 5% of inheritance of many characteristics like height or proneness to many diseases, rather than about 80%, which is what people expected to find. And of course, there that can take us into uh, uh, an alternative uh, uh, 
description of what may be going on, which I'd like to come to in a little bit, uh, your, your very original thinking on morphic resonance. But before we do that, um, I think a really central piece of, of your work here is, uh, is in uh, quantum mechanics and uh, physics and uh, your discussion of uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, book, The Grand Design, uh, on M theory, and in fact, we had a, a previous uh, New School conversation with a, a distinguished American physicist named Tom Nash about M theory, which actually he was somewhat critical of as well. But I'd like to uh, to come to the point with you about uh, the incredible effort that is uh, is underway in physics. Uh, to discount the cosmological anthropic principle. And those efforts, as you describe them, are uh, what you call the ultimate violation of Occam's razor, the philosophical principle uh, that you, you, uh, you follow the simplest uh, explanation for what's going on. And I wonder if you could walk us through uh, why M-theory violates uh, the uh, Occam's razor principle? Well, um, M-theory is kin, akin to superstring theory. It has 11 dimensions. Superstring theory has 10. They're very similar theoretical endeavors. And what they do is provide a mathematical description of uh, the world in terms of highly abstract, microscopic um, phenomena which they presume underlie the world as we know it. The problem is that both M-theory and superstring theory give far too many solutions. If you work out the equations and things, it turns out that they describe at least 10 to the power of 500 different universes. Um, so that's vast uh, theoretical froth uh, over and above anything we actually observe. Now, what they think is, uh, what Stephen Hawking thinks, is that all these billions, quadrillions, I mean, inconceivable numbers of universes actually exist. And they, they, they think this for two reasons. First, it's what M-theory predicts. M-theory doesn't predict anything that can be tested. Um, it predicts the existence of inconceivable numbers of universes that can't be observed and for which there's not a shred of evidence. Um, but this is also something that's predicted by uh, the so-called multiverse theory, which comes out of cosmology. Um, cosmology has to deal with what you rightly said is the, the, the anthropic cosmological principle, um, which is based on the idea that the universe contains us. Now, if the universe contains us, it must have the right properties for life and intelligence to evolve. So... Uh, that means that the so-called laws and constants of nature must be fixed within rather narrow limits because lots of other laws and constants wouldn't give rise to life as we know it. So um, one way of dealing with that is to say that um, there must have been an intelligent designer who fixed the laws and constants as they are. Um, that's what some physicists would say. But most physicists are desperate to avoid God in any form because they're, they're atheists and, and think God has no place in science. So to get round this, what they say is there are countless actual universes, of which ours is just one, and this is the only one we can know because it's the only one that has the right conditions for us. Uh, but there's nothing special about it apart from that. All the others actually exist. So this is, uh, this is the uh, multiverse theory. Uh, again, there's not a shred of evidence for this. Um, and my criticism of that and the intelligent design idea, which is ever kind of engineering mechanical God starting off the world machine in the first place, fine-tuning it like an engineer, is that both of these theories um, presuppose that all the laws of nature were fixed at the beginning and have to be explained, either in terms of vast numbers of other universes or in terms of a mechanical God. Um, I myself think that the regularities and laws of nature, uh, of nature are not really laws that are fixed, but habits that evolve. And the reason things fit together so well is not because they were all designed in the first place, but rather that they've evolved. 
in such a way that only things that fit in survive. There's a kind of cosmic natural selection at work. Um, so I think both these, uh, the multiverse or the universe uh, argument, which is rages among cosmologists, uh, both of these positions are misconceived because they make an assumption which I think isn't true. And that brings us to your your very remarkable work on, on morphic resonance. And... Um, and also, it, it brings us into uh, a tradition of, uh, of Platonic thought. Uh, somewhere in the book, I remember you quote someone as saying that contemporary physics has decided uh, in favor of Plato. And uh, so you seem to me, at least, to be uh, part of a lineage um, that uh, goes back to Plato and has a, a very uh, distinguished uh, history uh, both in the West uh, and uh, and more broadly, uh, in which morphic resonance uh, is in some sense nested. And I wonder if you could uh, describe your theory of morphic resonance to us and address its intellectual and scientific precursors. Yes, well, um, in terms of Greek philosophers, actually I think its precursors are more, is, is, is much more Aristotle than Plato. Uh-huh. Um, you see, Plato thought that the, the the reality, ultimate eternal reality, was outside space and time in timeless archetypes. Mm-hmm. It was a radically unevolutionary philosophy. Aristotle thought that things were governed by souls and organizing principles inside nature, not outside nature. And he wasn't an evolutionary thinker, but... Um, if you put Aristotelianism onto an evolutionary basis, then I think you get something rather close to what I'm saying. Um, the the basic idea of morphic resonance is that what happens in, in the world is much more a matter of habit than an idea of law. Um, the idea of law implies an external lawgiver who imposes laws on nature. And in the 17th century, uh, that was based on this special kind of theology they had then, uh, where God was like the cosmic emperor imposing laws, and he was also the cosmic law enforcement agency, making sure everything obeyed them. Um, And uh, he was also a kind of mathematician, so the laws were mathematical laws. Now, that view made sense in the 17th century in the context of, of the machine theory of the universe. And it made sense in physics up until 1966 when the Big Bang Theory came in. But we now have a radically evolutionary cosmology. Uh, Everything is evolving. None of the atoms or molecules or plants or crystals or planets or stars that exist today were there at the moment of the Big Bang. Everything has evolved in time. So I don't think it makes sense, really, to say that it's all based on laws that were there at the moment of the Big Bang. That's one of the dogmas of science that I mentioned earlier. Um, Instead, I think it makes more sense to think of nature as having a kind of memory. Um, What happens depends on what's happened before. Nature is habit-forming. Habits build up within the universe. And my own hypothesis as to how that happens is through what I call morphic resonance. Similar things influence subsequent similar things um, and make them more likely to happen. When I say things, I mean vibratory patterns of activity in self-organizing systems. And that's rather a long phrase, but it means things like atoms, molecules, crystals, cells, animals, plants, social groups like termite nests or flocks of birds, ecosystems, planets, solar systems, and galaxies. All of these are organized systems that are self-organizing. They're not put together by anything outside themselves. They organize themselves. And um, they all have um, fields that organize them, which I call morphic fields. Morphic means form or shape. Um, And they have a kind of resonance. uh, uh, Morphic resonance is what keeps them the way they are and also enables them to resonate across time with previous similar systems. In practice, what this means is that each kind of thing has a kind of collective memory. So each kind of crystal has a kind of memory of previous crystal forms. It crystallizes the way it does because 
crystals of that type crystal that crystallized that way before. Each animal has instincts which are like habits of the species. So, for example, if you train rats to learn a new trick in New York, then rats all over the world should learn the same trick quicker just because these rats have learned to do it. Um, and, and there's actual evidence from experiments that this rather surprising effect takes place. It's a kind of collective memory. It's similar to what Jung was talking about in relation to humans um, uh, in terms of the collective unconscious. So I think that morphic resonance uh, gives rise to habits in nature. There's a kind of memory in the evolving universe rather than a kind of timeless platonic mind transcending it, uh, which doesn't itself evolve being timeless. Now, that's very helpful to me, uh, and that, thank you for that correction. But I wonder how that fits with uh, the cosmological anthropic principle. In other words, I can understand how for many phenomena that would be true, but if the, uh, anth the, anth if the uh, anthropic principle, I'm sorry, um, is correct, then aren't there certain dimensions of uh, the cosmos that, uh, that need to be, in some sense, uh, uh, eternal in order to, uh, in order to have us uh, at, the, at the center, in some sense, of uh, the cosmos? Well, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, first of all, I don't think we need to assume that the, the laws and constants are eternal. I think they're habits that evolve. But the way the universe evolves, you see, um, and the anthropic principle can be interpreted in a completely different way from saying it's all designed that way in the first place. Um, it can be interpreted instead by having the, open, the beginning stages rather indeterminate and, and not at all determined to go one way or another. But um, the, the evolutionary process, instead of being pushed from behind, could be pulled from in front. There could be some kind of cosmic teleology, goal or end, or a whole set of goals or ends that pull the developing universe towards it. Um, and it could be that the uh, emergence of intelligence and minds and consciousness within um, living beings is one of the purposes of the universe. And it may be to achieve that purpose um, that the evolutionary process or part of it has been pulled towards consciousness and the emergence of consciousness rather than it being planned in advance and all built in uh, in, in the details in the first place. So I mean, in that sense, in that sense uh, intelligence or mind would be a, a kind of universal attractor and that, that the evolution of the universe is being pulled in that direction? Something like that, yes. But um, I don't think we can take too simple a view that intelligence or consciousness is the only attractor because um, that might give us too privileged a position in this process. I, otherwise, we'd end up with the view that the entire universe with billions of galaxies and the entire evolution of life on Earth was all just because of us. And I think that, that it, it's very hard to understand why you'd need hundred billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars, just so humans could appear on Earth. Also, it's hard to see why there have to be a million species of beetles in the Amazon <laughs> right. uh, in order that humans should evolve, especially since we're rendering them extinct before we've even classified them. So this is something that the evolutionary philosopher Teilhard de Chardin grappled with. And if you have two... Uh, human-centered view, and I think the anthropic principle does imply a very human-centered view, um, uh, then it doesn't account for the tremendous diversity of nature. I think one of the things that evolution reveals to us is that um, there's a kind of drive towards diversity, the vast diversity of galaxies, of stars, of planets, and on this um, earth, vast diversity of life forms, plants and animals. I mean, a vast, luxurious flowering of huge numbers of species, many of which are now extinct. But even on the, the planet today, there's vast numbers of species. And then there's a huge diversity of 
human languages, of cultural forms, of dances, of tunes, of music, of inventions, of forms of craft and art and so forth, and literature and fiction and whatnot. So there seems to be a principle of creativity at work in the cosmos that uh, one of its goals seems to be a sheer joy in the proliferation of form, complexity, and order. And I think any view of evolution has to take that into account. You describe in, in your wonderful chapter, Is Nature Purposeless? Uh, you describe the Hindu and, and Buddhist views of the Hindu cosmology of the four ages and we're living in the Kali Yuga, a time of strife and discord. And by contrast, the Tibetan Buddhists see a progressive process. And uh, then you co- quote again Teilhard de Chardin, that the entire evolutionary process was moving toward an endpoint of maximum organized complexity, which he called the omega point. So is Chardin closest to your own sense of uh, what the, the uh, telos of the universe might be? Well, sort of, although I find Chardin's thinking a bit ambiguous here. I mean, after all, Tad Chardin was writing his stuff in the 1940s and 50s, um, before the impact of modern cosmology had sunk in and before the Big Bang Theory. So um, he hadn't really taken into account, you know, the vast number of galaxies or the entire cosmic evolutionary process and the way we think of it today. And the Big Bang Theory uh, became orthodox only in 1966, and his book, The Phenomenon of Man, his main evolutionary book, was published, I think, in the 50s, and it was written long before that. So um, what he called the omega point, which is the idea of an end point for the evolutionary process, it's not clear when he's talking about it, whether he's referring to a purely human phenomenon. Is this about the end process or end end of human uh, and terrestrial development, just this planet, evolution on this planet, reaching some kind of culmination? Or is it cosmic? And... If we take it to be cosmic, much more than the kind of provincial affairs of the Earth, um, we then run into an interesting and almost uncharted realm of speculation. Because if the evolution of human consciousness on Earth is part of the evolutionary process and a key part, an important part of it, which I think we're bound to think it is, um, it's only through human consciousness, after all, that we can know about the rest of the universe. I mean, cows and geese and butterflies and and even bonobos and baboons and orang-utans, complex though their social lives are, as far as we know, don't know about stars and other planets and certainly not other galaxies. Humans didn't know about them until the 20th century. Uh, so our minds, in some sense, reach out throughout the whole universe in a way that other animal minds don't. Our minds are much less local. They're much less confined to Earth because we can see the Earth from outside, literally through spaceships and satellites, and also um, through science uh, reach into the vastness of space and indeed down into the microscopic structure of matter um, in a way that no other animal can. And science is a product of this extraordinary human ability. Now, if that's part of this cosmic process, the development of science itself, and the expansion of human consciousness that goes with it, both through science and through religion, through mystical experience, where people directly experience a conscious connection with a conscious source way beyond the human level. Um, Then, again, is this something that relates us to the whole of the rest of the universe? And if so, what relation does our consciousness have to that in other stars in our own galaxy or other galaxies? And the only way that our minds could communicate with them, if there is a kind of communication lying ahead of us in the future, would be by something like telepathy. Uh, It wouldn't be just through regular technology. If we send radio signals, as some people do in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, if you send out radio signals, beam out prime numbers or the decimal places of pi or something like that, that's the kind of thing they do. It would take 100,000 years for these signals to reach a star on the other side of our own galaxy, 
because it's 100,000 light years across. And if the inhabitants of a planet near that star replied by return of post, uh, it would take another 100,000 years for their reply to get back to Earth. That would be 200,000 years for the message to go out and come back. Um, and that's still within our own galaxy. And there's billions of galaxies beyond our own. So I don't think that any idea that our consciousness is, relates in some way to the rest of the universe um, can make sense except in terms of some, uh, something that goes way beyond our existing technologies. It's fascinating. Uh, uh, I want to get to a, 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 a question about uh, the dialogue that you propose with uh, religions toward the end of the book. But I've often wondered um, whether um, telepathy is uh, faster than the speed of light. In effect, whether telepathy... Is there evidence that, that the telepathic communication, and let's just assume for the sake of argument, which you and I both assume that it's real... Is there evidence, is there scientific evidence that it's instantaneous or does it travel at some speed? Well, the data simply can't tell us that at the moment. Um, it's rather hard. I mean, telepathy experiments uh, are not very precise. And um, there's no way you can actually answer that question. The, the closest that you can come to that is through telepathy experiments involving telephone calls. And I've been doing a whole series of those, as you probably know. You know telephone telepathy is one of the topics I've investigated. Right. Um, it's the phenomenon where you think of somebody, then they ring, and you say, it's funny, I was just thinking about you. Um, more than 80% of the population have had that kind of experience. I think what's happening is we're picking up people's intention to call us, that someone wants to say, somebody wants to call you, Michael, and they, they think about you, um, then you, um, you might pick up that intention uh, while they're sort of looking up your number or getting out their phone and dialing the number. The intention goes before the, the call, and I think that's what we pick up. Um, I've done these experiments um, on telephone telepathy, which, where, uh, well, let me just back up a moment. How we do tests on this is we have um, subjects have four callers. Um, we select one of the four callers at random and ask them to call the person. When the phone rings, they have to guess which of the four people it is. If they were just guessing, if it was nothing but blind guessing or random coincidence, they'd be right about one time in four, 25%. In these tests, people are right about 45% on average. So there's a telepathic effect going on um, and that's what we're measuring. Um, we've done these experiments with people in Australia, which is the opposite side of the world from Britain. Um, and the experiments work perfectly well with people in Australia, um, the telephone telepathy tests. Um, so uh, that shows that the telepathy is happening more or less at the speed of light, because the telephone itself is working at the speed of light. That's why when you talk to someone in Australia, there isn't a long delay. And I'm talking to you now uh, over thousands of miles, and there isn't a noticeable delay between um, you speaking and me speaking. And that's because the signals are moving extremely fast, more or less at the speed of light. So the telepathic uh, impulse seems to be working at least as fast as the telephone system. Um, but the question as to whether it works faster, whether it can exceed the speed of light, whether the speed of thought is greater than the speed of light, is simply unanswerable at the moment with this kind of experiment. Um, and I can't think of any way in which one could actually do uh, experiments that could answer it. Toward the end of the book, uh, in a chapter called Scientific Futures, you call for new dialogues with religions. And um, you, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, segment in which uh, you quote the early Christian theologian Origen, uh, who thought of the world soul as uh, the Logos, endlessly creative. Um, the Logos was an aspect of God, not the whole of God, whose being transcended the universe. Uh, and um, you, you then go on to talk about uh, your idea 
which you also cover in another chapter, that mind, if minds are not stored as material traces in brains, but depend on a process of, in effect, morphic resonance, then memories themselves may not be extinguished at death. Um, is there some way in which these memories can continue to act? Uh, and then you say, um, and this is the, the paragraph I really wanted to come to, if minds are not confined to brains, how do these human minds relate to the minds of higher level systems of organization, like the solar system, the galaxy, the universe, and the mind of God? What is your own thinking about the answer to that question? Well, first, I think that our minds can relate to higher forms of consciousness than our own. I think all religions are based on the insight or experience that there are forms of consciousness way beyond the human level, much more inclusive, much greater than our own. And this is what mystics experience in moments of mystical illumination. They feel they're part of something much bigger than themselves. Um, so I think that the, this, the experience of forms of minds greater than our own is very common. And I think it's the essence of all religion. It's the beginning, the origin of all religion starts from that experience. Religions then get formulated in human languages and in cultural forms, and they're historically conditioned and all that. Um, so we have different religions. But um, this mystical insight or intuition or direct vision seems to me at the heart of all of them. Now, there could be several levels of connection. I mean, the, the normal assumption that people have is that it, if people have a mystical intuition, then it's God. Uh, so leaping straight from the human level to God or in Buddhist systems, nirvana or some higher consciousness. But there could actually be many levels in between. If there's a mind of the solar system, for example, or a mind of the galaxy, um, or a mind of the cosmos as a whole, um, these may be far greater minds than our own, but not yet God, who may be a mind including the cosmos, but transcending it. Um, so it's, it's not clear that all mystical experiences are the same, um, uh, nor is it clear they're all contacting the, very, the same greater mind, or there may be several different levels of mind beyond our own. Um, so these, I think, are as open questions. Um, and I don't know to what extent the religious traditions have dealt with them. I mean, after all, all the religions we have, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and indeed shamanic religions, um, have grown up in the context of a worldview that was much smaller than ours today. They grew up when people didn't know the stars were uh, suns like ours, when they didn't know there were galaxies beyond our own. Um, so they've been put within a, a much smaller conceptual frame than anything we have today. So I think it's a really big challenge for science and religion to explore together how um, we can understand what's going on in the light of our modern scientific knowledge, because the old religious traditions, the old mystical traditions, grew up in, in, a, in, in a much smaller worldview. The experiences themselves, I'm sure, are completely valid. After all, an experience is an experience. But the way we interpret them has changed in the light of science and probably needs to change a lot more. So I don't know the answers to all these things. I just think they're important questions for now uh, that didn't arise in the past. Is there a thinker or a group of thinkers uh, who you refer to uh, conceptually who are thinking along these lines of, in effect, uh, what Kessler might describe as nested holons of, uh, and the universe as a kind of creative, evolving consciousness. You certainly talk about those concepts in the book, but is there, is there a, an individual thinker or a group of thinkers that you think have thought most creatively about what you describe? That is to say that, that these, there's not a, a single higher level of organization, but in effect nested holons of higher levels of organization. Well, yes, I think that the, the philosopher who most clearly 
talked about this in the 20th century was Alfred North Whitehead. Yes, right. The British philosopher right. who then moved to Harvard. And the people who continue that line of thought most effectively are people who have developed his, his philosophy and theology in what's called the School of Process Studies or Process Theology or Evolutionary Theology. Um, and the main center for Whiteheadian thought at the moment where there is a group of people exploring these ideas is in California, in Claremont, California, at Claremont College at the Center for Process Studies. Um, and there, that, I, I was there um, last year. Uh, they invited me over for a seminar. We had two days where, to discuss the relation between morphic resonance and the thought of Whitehead and the school of um, you know, process studies and, uh, um, and process philosophy. Um, and it was very fascinating. It wasn't a conference open to the public. They invited leading process philosophers in the Whitehead tradition from all over the United States uh, and myself, and there were about 30 of us. Um, and we had two whole days to explore these things, and it was a very, very interesting, stimulating gathering. And in fact, the um, videos of it were on, I don't know if they're still there, but they were on the uh, Claremont College uh, website. Um, the Claremont Graduate School. And you, you may be able, I would imagine, to link to it from your website, Sheldrake.org. Yes, there is a link from my own website, right. www.sheldrake.org. Right. Um, but last time I checked it, it wasn't working, and I shall, in the next, uh, I, I shall make it a matter of urgency to try and get it working again. I don't know if their site's got a fault or mine, but anyway... By the time um, anyone hears our discussion, hopefully it will be working. And there's anyone who's into this kind of thing would, would could listen to this discussion. It, it was a series of uh, I made a series of presentations on the hierarchical organisation of living organisms and the universe, the nature of memory, uh, creativity in evolution. Um, and uh, you know the the, the uh, bigger philosophical picture, and then there was a dialogue with a leading Whitehead scholar after each of these talks, and then a more open discussion among this group of scholars. So, in my experience, this is the uh, place where there's most thought going into this. And interestingly, the School of Process Studies um, bridges uh, philosophy and theology. Uh, there's no sort of artificial distinction between them there. One of the most surprising features of my visit to the uh, Center for Process Studies in Claremont uh, was that there was a Chinese professor there uh, who'd studied at Claremont and was a Whitehead scholar, and he's now back in China. And I asked him, I said, do you have anything like the Center for Process Studies in China? He said... We've got more than 30 centers for process studies in China based on Whitehead's thought. Isn't that I'm fascinating? I'm absolutely amazed. There's only one in the entire Western world, and they have more than 30 in China. Um, and the reason for it is, apparently, that um, in China, part of the ruling elite uh, is heavily mechanistic and materialistic, but another part of the ruling elite uh, wants to reconnect with traditional Chinese philosophy, particularly Confucianism. I think the, the thinking behind that seems to be that if you tell young people that the most glorious thing in the world is to have revolutions, and China's had two, the nationalist and then the communist revolution, then they might say, why don't we have another one? That's the last thing the Chinese ruling group want people to be thinking about. So they'd much rather have a, a revival of Confucianism, respect for authority, and a kind of holistic philosophy. But in China, the only thing, the only, they won't get it taken seriously unless it has the kind of imprimatur, the stamp of authority of, West, of the West and of science. So Whitehead is the philosopher who, in their view, and in my view too, most closely integrates a holistic view with modern science and points the way forward to a more holistic, integrative way of seeing nature. And so it's fascinating to me that uh, there's so much going on beneath the radar uh, in China along these lines. 
That's fascinating. Uh, I'd like to turn uh, uh, to your your chapter on is all biological inheritance material, and you referenced the disappointment of the the genome project and the uh, the, the missing heritability um, uh, matter. And uh, I I think this is. Uh, Along with uh, a cosmology, in a sense, along with the, the question about the, the structure of the universe and the effort to avoid the anthropic principle by multiplying the number of universes beyond all belief, uh, this question of uh, the unfulfilled promises of molecular biology seems to me, and the missing heritability problem seems to me really central to the contemporary scientific enterprise. And I wonder if you would elaborate on that. Yes. Well, as I said earlier, the, the, there was an enormous optimism in the 1980s and 90s that through sequencing genomes, through reading out what they called the book of life, um, we would understand human nature and indeed the nature of all organisms in molecular terms. And so billions of dollars were invested, a huge amount of effort and technical skill was deployed. And in the year 2000, in June, at the White House, President Clinton and Tony Blair announced the uh, final reading of the Book of Life. The, uh, well, it was actually the first draft of the Human Genome Project. Um, and this seemed like the ultimate triumph. And before it happened, we were told... You know, this would transform biology, technology, and everything. The 21st century would be the century of biotechnology and so forth. Uh, well, it was actually a huge disappointment. First of all, they expected about 100,000 genes, and it turned out there's only 23,000 human genes. Sea urchins have 28,000, and rice plants have 35,000. So we, we don't have a very impressive number of genes compared with a lot of other organisms. Um, and that was a big shock. Um, secondly, many of our genes are very, very similar, if not identical, to those in chimpanzees, so don't really explain. You know, 99% the same. Don't really um, explain why humans are human as opposed to chimpanzees. Uh, they've, they've not really um, come up with any clear answers. But the real crisis developed only in the last three or four years. Um, they got to the point where they sequenced 30,000 different genomes of different people, and they knew the characteristics of these people, the height, their diseases, um, all sorts of features of these people. And so then, knowing what the people were like and knowing what their genes were like, um, it, scientists constructed a whole series of models um, to find out which genes were involved with, with what. And one of the first things they looked at was something that's simple and easy to observe, like height. Now, it's been known for a long time that tall parents tend to have tall children, short parents, short children. And of course, you have to correct for the effects of changing nutrition over the generations because obviously people are getting taller because they're better fed as children. But um, with all the corrections for that, it turns out that if you measure parents' height with a tape measure, uh, you can predict the children's height with about 80% accuracy, um, uh, knowing the parent's height. That, in technical language, is, says that height is 80% heritable. Now, when they sequenced the genomes of 30,000 different people in something called the Genome-Wide Association Studies, um, it turned out about 50 genes are responsible for height. And then they made their best model for the different contributions of these genes and then took people's uh, genomes at random and predicted the height of the people on the basis of the genes, then looked up what height they actually had. And it turned out that they could predict people's height with an accuracy of 5% based on the genes, whereas at vastly lower cost, you could predict it with an accuracy of 80% with the use of a simple tape measure. And this gap between the 5% that the genes explain together with, uh, with contrasted with the 80% that was, is known to be heritable on the basis of just observing things like measuring height with tape measures, this gap, the missing 75% of inheritance, is now called the missing heritability problem. And 
this is a crisis in biology because it shows that the assumptions on which the whole genetic theory of inheritance was based are seriously misleading. Now, I myself, I, I must admit, had a certain amount of schadenfreude when this happened. I, I sort of, I, I, I was sort of slightly, I must admit, slightly pleased when this happened because I've been saying for 25 years that genes are grossly overrated and that most biological inheritance is not genetic. It depends on morphic resonance, which I talked about earlier in our conversation. Um, it's uh, most of what we inherit in form and behavior is based on a resonance with our ancestors across time. It's not coded inside chemical genes. The genes, of course, are important. They code for proteins. We know what they do. They code for the primary structure of proteins, the sequence of amino acids in proteins, and we have to have the right proteins. Um, otherwise, we can't develop in a healthy way. Faulty proteins lead to genetic faults and, and genetically determined defects in organisms. But the shape of your face or your hands uh, or the instincts of a spider and knowing how to spin its web without being taught, uh, all these kinds of things, I think, are inherited by morphic resonance. So I think the 75% of missing heritability from the genetic point of view gives us a rough measure of what's actually going on. Uh, and, and I think that the missing heritability is largely a matter of morphic resonance. And in what way can that hypothesis of yours be actually studied with respect to uh, inheritance? Well, um, one way is to uh, grow organisms under unusual conditions. This has actually been done with fruit flies. If you grow fruit fly embryos in, in an unusual chemical environment, the flies develop abnormally. This is a bit like thalidomide causing um, malformations in babies. It's not to do with genetics. It's to do with an environmental disturbance as they're um, developing. In the particular case I discuss in my books, um, this is to do with fruit flies exposed to ether three hours after the eggs are laid. Some of them develop four wings instead of two. Uh, normally, of course, flies have two wings. Um, now, if you keep doing this, more and more flies develop four wings instead of two. And after you've done it for, say, 10 or 12 generations, you can take a fresh batch of flies whose parents have never been exposed to ether at all, expose them to ether, and many of them develop four wings, whereas the first time around only a few of them did. It gets much easier for this form of development to occur. And that has nothing to do with genes. It's a pure morphic resonance effect. Um, some of it, there's now in, in um, the study of inheritance a new phenomenon that was denied until the 21st century, namely epigenetics, where you can have modifications of the genes that are passed on. And that, together with morphic resonance, I think accounts for um, many of these hereditary phenomena um, that genes can't explain. There are other examples I mentioned earlier if you train rats to learn a new trick in one place, rats elsewhere learn it quicker. They inherit the experience of the first lot of rats, even though they're the other side of the world and have no genetic connection or epigenetic connection with the first lot of rats. And that, I think, is a pure morphic resonance effect. So how are the most intelligent and open-minded of materialist scientists dealing with the experimental evidence for the reality of morphic resonance. I mean, do you have informed critics who, uh, who really study your data and the data to which you point? Or is there still a real failure to, to take the science on morphic resonance seriously? Well, most scientists work in very specialized areas. They're busy doing their own thing. I mean, um, they don't sort of drop everything and start doing something totally different when a new idea comes along. Um, so I would say there are some scientists who do uh, are interested in those ideas, who've read the evidence, who've read my books, and who uh, discuss them in an intelligent, informed way. But they do so in private, not in public because this is still a very controversial subject, and scientists live in an atmosphere of fear. 
probably worse than in almost any other subject because in most areas like literary criticism or politics or uh, law or um, many other areas of human life, religion, there are different schools of thought. We live in a pluralistic world. There are lots of different religions, lots of different denominations and sects, different schools of thought, different political parties. We're used to pluralism. But in science, it's not like that. There's the idea that there's one truth at any given time. Of course, there are people doing research trying to extend it and go beyond it. But um, there is a kind of terrible uniformity of thinking. And science is the only realm of modern life where one constantly hears the word heresy. If anyone comes up with a different idea, it's called a heresy within science. And and they're not joking. Um, This means that there's a, a terribly intolerant atmosphere within the scientific community. So people who think differently keep it quiet. I had just two or three days ago, I had um, a conversation with a top American biologist. He's head of a major laboratory at one of the Ivy League universities. He has a big National Institute of Health grant. He has a whole team of people. He's um, you know, one of the leading people in his generation in American biology. He happens to be a friend of mine, and we meet, and he came for lunch, and we um, had hours talking together in a very interesting and stimulating way. And I said to him, look, I've just thought of a new morphic resonance experiment that could be done quite simply in a cell biology lab. Um, Any chance of getting it done in yours? And he's the head of it. He's the principal investigator. And he said, I just couldn't. He said, it wouldn't just, I just couldn't do that, you know. It might endanger, you know, the grant flow and what my colleagues would think and, you know, can't risk the program. And I said, well, is there anyone in your department who you can discuss these things with? And he said, the only person in my department who I can discuss these kinds of ideas with is myself. And, you know, he can discuss them freely with me in private, but he wouldn't want to go out there in public um, and do unconventional research, even though he's in such a powerful position. And for people who are graduate students or postdoctoral fellows, then they're even more vulnerable and even more fearful. So I think there is something terribly oppressive about the current mood in science. And I think what will change it, and one of the things I mention in my book, Science Set Free, one of the things that will help set science free is when uh, scientists who are in the closet, and I think Actually, the majority of scientists are in the closet about something or other. Feel free to come out and um, speak freely. And then I think we'll see that science is not made up of people who are dogmatic, diehard materialists. For the most, uh, the majority of scientists are probably not. Um, there's actually a lunatic fringe of militant atheist materialists who've managed to portray themselves as the mainstream of science. And I think they're now actually quite a small minority. But the media and other scientists uh, still believe them uh, that they're speaking for the majority. I don't think they are. But until people, until the social conditions change and people feel free to come out, um, uh, most scientists who are interested in these bigger questions will keep quiet or just discuss them with their friends in private. Um, now, since I've been out of the closet for a long time, um, people don't have any problems talking to me about it. And in fact, since my book, Science Set Free, came out, I've had lots of emails and contacts from eminent figures in the scientific world, as well as graduate students and postdoctoral fellows, um, who want to contact me and discuss it with me. I've been having a series of clandestine meetings with leading British scientists, doctors, and psychiatrists. Um, And... I know that there are many such people out there in in the scientific world, but very few of them have colleagues who would suspect that they, um, that, 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 you know, they they harbor these kinds of doubts and different thoughts. It's very like gays in the 1950s being in the closet. You know, lots of gays went to work and pretended to be straight, and people working alongside them were gay and pretending to be straight, and they never knew each other was gay. And, And I think the scientific world is full of people who have spiritual views, holistic views, um, who uh, who have had psychic experiences, 
who've been exploring consciousness through meditation or possibly psychedelics, who would never mention it to their colleagues at work. They would speak about it to trusted friends after work. But So I think the scientific world is actually much more open to these ideas. I know it's much more open to these ideas, but in private, not in public. Rupert Sheldrake, thank you so much for being with us at the New School. It's my pleasure, Michael. Rupert Sheldrake, biologist, author, one of the world's most innovative scientists, best known for his theory of morphic fields and morphic resonance, uh, which leads to a vision of a living, developing universe with its own inherent memory. Uh, His really remarkable website is www.sheldrake.org, and his new book, Science Set Free, Ten Paths to New Discovery, is very worth reading. Rupert, thanks again.